Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, if that didn't put some giddy up in your morning, I don't know if I can help you. Uh, I'm going to just kind of let the spirit have you in this morning. Um, I want to show you a picture of one of the most beautiful islands in the world. This is the island of Santorini. It is so distinct because basically a long time ago, a volcano erupted, creating this crescent moon shape of volcanic rock. You have these dark volcanic rocks that plunge into the blue Aegean ski, the sea and this incredible crisp blue sky. And dotted along the coastline of these cliffs are these beautiful little white houses that make up the island of Santorini. Rick Steves, the travel guide, says, if you can't take a good picture at the island of Santorini, you seriously need a new camera. Kelly and I were on vacation there once. We were hiking along the edge and the cliffs and going in and out of all the different villages. And while we were there, we noticed the proliferation, the number of churches that are on the island of Santorini, uh, churches like this one here with its beautiful blue dome. And then there are a lot of smaller churches. It seems like every piece of property that you get to has a church on it. Not only this one, but when you look closely, the doors are really small. This door probably only came up to my waist. It's almost like a church for a hobbit or for a small child. And I have a doctorate in theology, and I could not for the life of me figure out what they were doing with these tiny little churches. And so I decided to go to the fount of knowledge of where you should go when you're in a local place. I asked a cab driver, and this is what he said. And it was verified in between the services. We had a couple from Peachtree that just got back from, Peach, uh, from Santorini last week, and they said, we had the same question and discovered the same thing. And that is this. I'm talking with the cab driver, and I'm like, what's up with the little baby churches? And he goes, oh, yeah, we've all got one. And I'm like, well, what, what do you use it for? It doesn't seem like you can fit a lot of people in them. And he's like, oh, no, 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 we don't congregate in them. And I'm like, well, is it like kind of a prayer closet? Do you go and, like, do some praying in there? And he's like, oh, no, 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 we don't go in there and pray in there. And I'm like, well, what are they for, these little churches? He says, well, everybody who is a landowner has a church on their property where you take a portion of your property, your stuff, and you put it in there and save it up for the community, for the church, for the, for the village. And I'm like, well, what do you have in your church? And he's like, well, I got a lot of wine in my church. <laughs> and I said, I want to go to your church. <laughs> and he said, so basically you storehouse things and then once a year on your property, you throw a village-wide celebration where everybody is invited. He said, you know, in my small village, we have about 70 celebrations a year. I'm like, that's the kind of place I want to live. They have this incredible sense of trust, this incredible sense of community. And I realized when the cab driver's describing this, this is a far cry from the Christianity that I grew up with in Waco, Texas. This is not what I was taught about the Christian faith. Little storehouses of God's abundance and goodness for parties. I want to share a description of a scripture right in the heart of the gospel that says this. It says, they celebrate yours, meaning God's abundant goodness, and joyfully sing of his righteousness. 
And I just want you to pause for a moment at the beginning of this message. And when you think about the faith as it was introduced to you, when you think about Christianity as you've experienced it, as you think about the way that God is working in our society through Christians mobilizing together, do you see us as a giant celebration? Do you see us as a party on the move celebrating God's abundance and goodness and that there is so much joy within this community called the church that it just breaks out into joy-filled song. Well, my experience of church has not been like that for most of my life. In fact, I would say that most of American Christianity, but Presbyterians in particular, we must confess, uh, suffer from what I would like to refer to as celebration deficit disorder, (laughs) that we have lost some of the joy of what God has given to us. In fact, I remember being in a Presbyterian church. It was the first Presbyterian church of Houston, and there was a seminary president who was there as a guest preacher, and he was preaching on the joy of the Lord. And I watched his sermon three times because I'm an associate pastor, and I sat through all of them, and not once did he smile. I wanted to stand up and say, if you're preaching on the joy of the Lord, tell your face. <laughs> Nothing. Just the joy of the Lord is serious. Okay. (laughs) Author by the name of Philip Yancey has written a great book called Vanishing Grace. And and in it, he talks about whatever happened to the, the good in good news. And he quotes a comedian in this book who says this, all religions are the same. Religion is basically guilt with different holidays. Ouch. Is this really the view of religion in general and Christianity in particular? The Barna Research Group did a study where they determined that the top three perceptions of non-Christians of Christians is that we're judgmental, we're hypocritical, and we're anti-gay. And in my opinion, that's not just a PR problem, that there's an actual problem that there's something behind it. I remember when we used to live in Newport Beach, California, this was kind of the, the landscape of what it was like to live there and the most iconic building or structure in Newport is the Newport Pier. But before you walk onto the Newport Pier, you are going to be confronted with a series of messages. As you walk onto the Newport Beer, this is what it says. It says, no dogs, no diving, no jumping, no skating, no bicycles, no skateboarding, no vehicles over three tons, and no smoking. Which is a shame because I really love to walk my dog while pulling him on a skateboard, jumping up and down while he is smoking, and you need to know that my dog is over three tons. No, 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 no. Stop, 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 stop. Don't, 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 don't. This is the Christianity that I think that many of us have learned. So humor me for a minute. I want to invite you to close your eyes, a little moment of experiential learning. Close your eyes and picture God as you begin to pray to God. Picture God in your mind's eye, picture Jesus. And now think about it, what is the expression on Jesus' face as you close your eyes? 
Is he solemn? Is he sad? Is he concerned? Open your eyes for a moment. I wonder if any of you, when you started praying, if this was the image of Jesus that was in your mind. Jesus was with head cocked back, chortling, laughing, almost falling over. When I say that I don't think that the church has a PR problem, that we have an actual problem, I think it's a theological problem, and that is, is that we do not see God for who he really is. So Dallas Willard puts it this way. He says, you will not understand God until you understand this about him. God is the happiest being in the universe. And until we can get this right in our prayers, until we can start to figure this out together, we're going to get it all wrong. The most common description that Jesus has for the kingdom of God is that it's a celebration, that it's a party. And so Jesus tells a series of celebration stories. And one of those celebration stories I want to go through with you today, but this celebration uh, story doesn't start at a party. It starts in a very dark place. As a pastor, the most difficult journeys that I ever walk with a family is when they go through the loss of a child. Sometimes they lose a child to an addiction. Sometimes you can lose a child to a fracture in the relationship. Sometimes you can lose a child to unbelief. Sometimes you can lose a child even to death. And this is a celebration story that starts with a heartbreaking loss of a child. Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them confronted his father and said, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. In essence, what he was saying is, I don't want you. I don't want anything to do with you. I want what you have. I wish you were dead so that I could inherit what you have if you would only get out of my way. And for some incredible reason, The father cares more about his son than he does about his resources, and so he divides the property. He hands it over to his son, and a few days later, the son gathers all that he has and travels to a distant country, and there he squanders the family inheritance, everything that he's ever been given. At the same time, there's a crash in the economy. There's a downturn, and he finds himself penniless, absolutely broke, and he takes the most menial, disgusting, humiliating job that any good Jewish boy could end up doing. He finds himself serving the unclean, non-kosher pigs. And while he's staring at their slop, all of a sudden he has his aha, his wake-up revelation moment. And he says, how many of my father's hired hands live better than this? And so he picks himself off, dusts himself off, and he starts to walk back home, and in that he is rehearsing his speech, but he never gets a chance to use it. Because while he's still a long way off, his father sees him. Do you remember when I told you that basically at the beginning of this story that the son in saying divide the property between us was saying to the father, I wish you were dead? 
Well, one of the things that we know from the rabbinical tradition in hearing this story is that what would have happened to this boy in Jewish culture in the first century in that time is that when the boy would have left and with his inheritance, that they would have had a funeral for him, that they would have excommunicated him, that they would have cut him off from the family, that he was considered to be dead, and that nobody would be persecuted, that if that son ever set foot back in that village or in that area again, he could be killed because he was already considered to be dead. And so while he's still a long way off, the father sees him and he runs to him and he puts his arm around him. And it's like he's telling everybody who's around me, I don't care what the tradition says. I don't care what you think. I don't care about any of these things. This is my boy and he's mine. Don't touch him. And he says this to his servants. He says, quick, bring out a best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to what? The key to the story, the key to the passage is it celebrate, 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 celebrate. Over and over again, that's the heart of this. That the life of the party is the love of the Father. But there's also another character in this story. And he's out working the fields, maintaining the family business. We know there's an economic downturn, so things must be really hard. And as he approaches the house, he hears music and he hears dancing. And he rushes into the party and he embraces his brother and he said, I am so glad to see you. Right? That's how it went down? No. It says that he became to be angry and he refused to go in. So the father does the unthinkable thing for the second time, the first time in rushing after his son and he was coming back, and now the father humiliates himself again by walking outside to ask the older brother to come in. But he answered his father, look, all these years I have been working like a slave for you. I've never once disobeyed one of your commands. You've never even given me as much a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back who has squandered your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him? Are you kidding me? And then the father says, my son, my son, my son. You were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate, for this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now is found. This is the famous portrayal by the master Rembrandt of the return of the prodigal son. And I just want you to take a moment and look at this masterpiece and consider that story and let me ask you, where are you in that story? Are you on your knees before God? 
humbled, broken, receiving? Or are you standing off to the side, looking down, towering, self-important, and refusing the embrace? What is keeping you outside the party because the older brother's missing it? I have a good friend by the name of Walter Huntley. He and I have worked together on a university board because we both graduated from the same university. Walter's a great guy, lives in Atlanta, um, has a great business career, but was also a fantastic athlete, um, even went from Trinity to the NFL. And he said that his mom attended every single one of his football games. He was a wide receiver. And any time the quarterback threw to that half of the field, she closed her eyes. She never once saw him make a catch. She was there, but she wasn't really there. She was present, but she wasn't a part of it. She was missing it. Church, do you have your eyes open or closed? What are we missing? We're missing in celebration deficit disorder that the gospel is good news, not simply the opposite of bad news. Did you notice in the story that the father doesn't welcome the son in terms of saying, oh, it's good to see you again. Don't worry about the whole like inheritance thing. Everything's fine. I bless you. Go on with your life. That's not how it happened. He embraced him. He kissed him. He put a robe, the best one on him, ring symbolizing the family, covered him in his righteousness and said, welcome home, my son. It's not, it's not just that he was forgiven. It's, it's not just that he held back on the punishment. It's that he embraced him and set him up for a new life altogether. That the gospel is not simply the removal of the punishment or the forgiveness of our sins. It's the fact that there is a universal, eternal festival going on in the kingdom of God, and we get to be a part of it. As long as our eyes are open and our arms aren't crossed and we're standing back, Last year, on your behalf, I went down with a couple of people down to the country of Guatemala. Guatemala might be the most dangerous place for a little girl to grow up. There is a reported case of sexual abuse in Guatemala every two hours, and only 6% of reported cases of abuse get a verdict of guilty or innocence. In other words, 94% of the time with reported cases, there is no justice. We went to a place that was called the Oasis. It's a part of a ministry called Kids Alive, which is in a couple of dozen countries. Over 6,000 kids are a part of their mission of an integrated restoration and redemption with justice. The thing that struck me immediately when we got to the campus, I was prepared by Jay and others of what we were gonna see. What I was not prepared for was the fact 
that most of the girls who had been abused mostly by people that they know and trusted, maybe even loved, that they were almost all under the age of 14. And one of the things that I discovered while we were there, in that culture, one of the most significant milestones is your 15th birthday. They call it the quinceañera. It's the biggest celebration probably of a girl's life. And so you can imagine these girls that have had their innocence and their lives and their family taken away from them. They're ostracized. They're in this new place. And many of them turn 15 while on the property of Oasis. And while they're there, the community and family of Oasis throws the biggest 15-year-old birthday party for these girls. You are loved, you are cherished, you are chosen, and your story isn't over yet. And so these girls from Oasis have a smile on their face because the good news is bigger than they even dreamed. When I was in college, and if you know my story, I walked away from the faith when I was in high school, had a terrible spiritual experience of my scoutmaster sleeping with my youth director and my youth group and my scout troop disbanded, and if this was the hypocrisy of what the Christian faith was, I wanted nothing to do with it. So I walked away quietly, without any fanfare, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, just drifted away from the Christian faith. And midway through college, a community brought me back. And one of the guys in that community handed me a book that had been recently published in 1993, so the same year it was released. But it wasn't an ordinary book. It was a book that was called The Message. It was a New Testament, and it was published as a paraphrase of the New Testament. I had never read the Bible other than in like a group Bible study in a church setting. had never read it on my own. And I started to read it, and I couldn't put it down. I found myself reading it in between classes and then getting to the end of it and seeing the great feast, the great festival and revelation of what God is doing in all of eternity if we only had the eyes to see it, if our ears were only attuned to the music of the heavens. Behold, I am making all things new. This was on my mind this week because Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, went to be with the Lord this week. And Eugene Peterson was a Presbyterian pastor, and he was a part of the inspiration. If good scholars and pastors like Eugene Peterson can produce great works, 
like a compelling paraphrase of the New Testament. That's the stream I want to be a part of. That's the tribe I want to be a part of. I want to have ministries that can do those types of things. I cherish a book of Eugene Peterson's sermons that I have. And in one of those messages, it says this, that the story of our faith, our very existence begins and ends with joy. Joy at the beginning, joy at the end, joy everywhere in between. Joy is God's creation and gift. No authentic biblical faith is conceivable that is not not permeated with it. Is the joy of the Lord truly the strength of this church? Is the joy of the Lord permeate everything that we do in as a church? Maybe this phrase, they celebrate God's abundant goodness and joyfully sing of his righteousness. Maybe, maybe that's not just a prayer. Maybe it's a little bit of prophecy. Maybe there will be a day that here at Peachtree, as well as around this community, that Christians will not be known for their hypocrisy and their judgmentalism, that they will not be known so much for what we're against, but what we're for, that maybe there will come a day where we too build up in our own resources, we have storehouses of God's goodness that we set aside to deploy for the village, for the community, as well as for the world, in order for people to be able to experience the great knowledge of who God really is that God is not just looking down in sorrow on us, but that this is what God is really like, filled with joy and laughter, and that we will not understand life, we will not understand anything in life until we understand that God is the happiest being in the universe. So consider this pledge card that in a few moments I'm going to ask you to come in the tradition of this church to bring forward, to put in the baskets or on the table here. This pledge card is an invitation to a party, but here's the catch. It's not an invitation to the party for you. This is an invitation to the party for someone else. And when we are faithful, it brings a smile to girls' faces around the world as well as to the face of God. And so let's pray. Our gracious and loving Father, we are so incredibly grateful, grateful for your great love for us, that your gospel and your grace have not vanished, that it's not all about guilt with different holidays. Thank you that you do not come to just withhold the punishment, but to give us the fullness of the good news, that there's a celebration in your presence that you are inviting us into. And so, God, help us not to miss it. Help us to open our eyes. Thank you that in places like Guatemala as well as down the street from here, there are people who are beginning to know and to experience your celebration, your abundance. And so convict our hearts that the joy of the Lord will be our strength. Tell not only our faces, but our whole lives that we might become a storehouse to your goodness and celebration in the world. And we pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus and all of God's people said. In a, very dis, in a very disorderly, when the time is right and the spirit moves, we invite you to come.